Hey folks, Duncan here breaking in. I've got some bad news. The check from the Rockefellers bounced. And we were counting on that money to carry us through financially for the rest of the year. So yeah, um, being a foreign-funded radical propped up by rich American donors isn't actually real. And we need the support of real awesome folks like you. So we are running a fundraising drive for the whole month of September, and we are looking for folks who can financially support our work. We are a small shop. Uh, It is just Jim and I, but we are mighty, and I feel that we get a lot of shit done. This podcast coming up is actually really, really good, and I don't want to waste your time, so I'll make it short. Go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons and become a monthly donor. $5 a month is our base ask. $15 a month gets you some sweet, to-be-determined swag, and we very much appreciate it. And $30 a month gets you a t-shirt. The goal here is 200 patrons. Right now, we're at about 15 so far, but I believe in the Progress Alberta fans. So again, head to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons and become a monthly donor. Thanks so much. Estamos frente a un verdadero conflicto frontal sobre las grandes corporaciones transnacionales y los estados. Estos aparecen interferidos en sus decisiones fundamentales, políticas, económicas y militares por organizaciones globales que no dependen de ningún Estado y que en la suma de sus actividades no responden ni están fiscalizadas por ningún Parlamento, por ninguna institución representativa del interés colectivo. En una palabra, es toda la estructura política del mundo la que está siendo socavada. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're back here in our basement here in Treaty 6 Territory, and today we're talking about September 11th. Now, most folks who aren't leftists immediately think of the American 9-11, the one in New York, Twin Towers, crashing planes, Osama bin Laden. But there was a Chilean 9-11 46 years ago. In 1973, a violent U.S.-backed coup took out, essentially, the democratically elected leader of Chile, Salvador Allende. He was an elected socialist and an an ardent Marxist. And a military dictator, Augusto Pinochet, was installed as the military dictator of that country where he reigned for 17 years. And over his 17-year reign, more than 3,000 people were murdered or disappeared. More than 37,000 other Chileans were either tortured or imprisoned. Hundreds of thousands of Chileans fled the country out of fear for their safety. And to talk about this, and it's both its relevance in today's politics as well as to Alberta's politics, we have uh, Sandra Azakar and Ricardo Acuna, two folks uh, who experienced this firsthand. Sandra spent decades as a worker in the child welfare world and was a vice president with the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees before joining the Friends of Medicare as their executive director. And Friends of Medicare, actually, just a quick side note, uh, rocks and has been fighting for stronger public health care for 40 years. It's their 40-year anniversary this year. That's correct. Thank you. <laughs> and Ricardo Acuna is the executive director of the Parkland Institute, a very much needed bastion of kind of left-wing research and thought here in the conservative hellscape that is Alberta. Though, I mean, you're going to break in. It's not left-wing, right? <laughs> oh, no, we're left-wing. Okay, okay. We don't apologize for that. Um, it is an independent think tank. works out of the Faculty of Arts out at the University of Alberta, and we're extremely grateful to have Sandra and Ricardo here in studio. Thank you for having us. So 
I'd love to get a sense of specifically your Sandra, because Ricardo, from what I understand, you're you're about four when your family yeah. came over. But specifically from you, Sandra, I'd love to get a sense of like pre September eleventh, nineteen seventy three, Chile, and what it was like under Allende. Well, I I, I can definitely talk about that from uh, an eight year old perspective. Um, I think for us, uh, life was uh, a very good life. My my dad worked very hard to make sure that. Um, his children would not lack for anything. He had been orphaned quite young in, in his life, and so he knew what that meant, and, and he worked very hard to make sure that we had everything that we needed and, and wanted. Um, so for us, life was just like any other, um, you know, I, I guess it was good. We we had um, parents, we had good education, we had health care, we had absolutely everything that a, a child would need to to live a, a good life. And and a lot of that was brought in by Allende, right? When he was elected in 1970, he brought in a much stronger social safety net. He made healthcare much more widely available. Can you talk about kind of Allende's uh, legacy as as leader, even just in the three years he was around? Yeah, I, I, in, in a lot of ways, you've covered uh, one of the biggest changes that he did make was making healthcare universal, um, you know, improving the uh, child mortality rates and and definitely um, having a healthcare system that was responsive to the needs of, of everyone, not just those that that could afford it. Um, when it came to education too, he brought back public education and made it very strong. He almost wiped out illiteracy in, in Chile. And, uh, and, and so the social network that we were able to, to reclaim in, in less than three years was exponential and, and so much better. It made life so much better for so many people that up to that point had faced incredible amount of inequality and injustice. We had the highest rate of unemployment in Latin America. Poverty was all over the place. And I think it was, it was the people, um, that wanted to see that change that rose and, and, uh, got Allende elected to begin with. It's worth, it's worth pointing out too that, that, in 1970, uh, yeah, the economy was in a lot of trouble in Chile and people, people were having trouble finding work and, and, you know, feeding themselves. But at the same time, Chile had one of the strongest already, uh, educational systems in particular, um, in South America. And, and, uh, Allende's election and policies just made it that much stronger and much more universal and elimination of fees and the universal access to, to things like education and post-secondary. And I think it's worth talking about Allende's legacy, not only as leader, but as a political figure, even on the global stage, right? Like, he was a, a fervent socialist, an avid um, socialist, one who believed in Marxism. And so I have some, I have a quote further on that we can get into here, but, but it's, he was, but he was an elected official. He wasn't some radical. He wasn't a Marxist-Leninist. He didn't believe in this, you know, political revolutionary vanguard that would overtake it. He was trying to do it, sweetie pie, right? He was. This was through electoral politics and elections. Yeah, he identified. I mean, he he used the expression the Chilean path to revolution, right? I mean, this was this was his expression that this was very clearly something different. The ends were still the same. Right. The ends were still worker cooperatives, worker control of workplaces, uh, worker ownership of the means of production. Right. But the means were different than anything that had been tried right. before. And he was very clear on that. It was the first time that actually uh, working class was was able to participate and impact change in Chile. And that and that's a huge difference in, in terms of, of of what we're able to do to impact change even now when it comes to understanding the struggle in terms of a working class lens. 
And I think, I mean, and in doing the research for this episode, I just have to point out that like Salvador Allende like fucking slaps. Like when you look at his entire career as a politician, he got elected in his like thirties or something quite young. And he was Antifa. He was anti-Nazi from like the thirties when he was like just a young deputy, he was sending letters to Hitler and the, 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 and Germany, then, you know, denouncing Kristallnacht, you know, when he was elected and what he was fighting for was things like, like land reform. He's, redistributed huge amount of land to folks right he nationalized foreign owned firms specifically the copper industry right which is particular one of the big reasons why united states and kind of international capital and american capital freaked out so much when he was elected uh, again we talked about already healthcare and education systems became far more robust and this is in the context of chile too which 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 is somewhat removed from the like cadi cadi cadio um style kind of uh, politics you'd see in other South American countries. This was a stable democracy, and this is why yeah. I think he believed that that there could be this transition, this peaceful transition, to a, a socialist state. Right. That's correct. I think in a lot of ways, you know, I um, we've done so much to vilify the word socialism, but in, in the Chilean context, and and for for at least me, what that word means is just a. a a way of, of getting to a more just and equal society. And Allende was an example of how that could have been done um, within the electorate system, within that democracy that up until time, up until uh, 1973, Chile enjoyed. It was over 160 some years uh, of uninterrupted democratically elected governments. It's worth pointing out too that, you know, yes, he was, he was a socialist and he espoused those ideals and he lived by them. Um, but the coalition that got him elected was a broad coalition ranging from far left, you know, revolutionary parties right up to parties that were just barely on the left of center. And they all agreed with him being the presidential candidate and supported him and worked their asses off to get him elected. Yeah, I mean, doing the reading on this, it was like everyone from the like communists to the social democrats was was a part of that electoral coalition, right? And it's it's a really like interesting historical um, you know thing to go back and look at, at how we actually won that election. I mean, I think it's also worth throwing out some Allende quotes here because again, he he fucking rules. Uh, As for the bourgeois state, at the present moment, at the present moment, we are seeking to overcome it, to overthrow it. Our objective is total scientific Marxist socialism. That's from 1970, Conversations with Andy by Reggie Debray. Um, this other one I think is worth bringing up as well. We already had success in creating a democratic national government that is revolutionary and popular. That is how socialism begins, not with decrees. And to go back, and I think this is this is a real model for how we can like actually talk about uh, you know a politics that we do want, right? Definitely. I mean, it, nothing more can be added to those quotes in terms of how we can change the system uh, that oppresses so many and only benefits such a few, right? And we're living that now. I mean, we haven't learned anything from history since that time when it comes to uh, current day politics, not only in the United States, but what we see in Latin America, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was no equivocating. There was no, well, you know, politically, we can only get this far, right? Or yes, you know, ideally, we'd like a worker state, but politically, it's not practical to go that far. There was no equivocating at all. It was, this is where we're going, and this is the path for getting there. Yeah, like you you do need to have a clear political project that you're working towards, right? And I, I feel people on the left that we do struggle with that these days. Uh, I also think, I think we have to bring up, it's impossible to talk about this without bringing it up, just the extravagant extent to which 
the American empire was interfering in Chile, both prior to Allende's election, after Allende's election, and then also, of course, during the coup and, and during Pinochet's regime, right? Like, again, this is a democratically elected leader of a country that is tens of thousands of miles away from Washington, D.C. And but because he was an actual socialist, the United States decided, well, actually, we've got to fuck him up. And I think this quote from kind of Henry Kissinger kind of lays out the United States' approach to Chile and Chilean foreign relations. I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist because of the irresponsibility of its own people. That's Henry Kissinger in 1971. Yeah. That that interference was longstanding as well, right? And it was longstanding throughout the Americas. I mean, even under Kennedy, who's kind of, you know, broadly seen now as this kind of champion of democracy and human rights, there was interference. And it was it was anti-communist interference. There was concern about if one Latin American state outside of Cuba succeeds in installing a socialist or communist government, then they will all topple, right? The domino effect. So Kennedy took a different approach, but through uh, American foundations, through working uh, with labor unions, through largely working with Christian Democrats and nonprofits, tried to take the edge off the kind of growing uh, revolutionary sentiments. And this happened in Chile. And there were organizations like the Ford Foundation, who were incredibly active in Chile in the 60s, right, that were kind of complicit in in supporting that American infrastructure that eventually threw Allende over. You know, it, it's it's sickening to think that economic interests um, always prevail over over human rights, over the rights of of people to to self govern, no matter what continent we're talking about. And and the Americans definitely had a lot of business interests in Chile at that point. Um, so when Allende started in this path of nationalizing um, industries like the copper industry and the telephone industry, you know, and it was all those those things that the Americans saw as a threat. Um, not so much just the the ideals behind what the Allende government um, stood for, but it was also those business interests that they were trying to protect. And even in the historical context, when when opponents, when our ideological and political opponents bring up, oh, well, we don't have an example of a successful socialist state. Like when you consider the billions of dollars and how much time and attention was paid to ensuring that that outcome never actually happened um, all over the world. I mean, you you can't. It didn't happen in a vacuum, yeah. right? And and then, I mean, it's it's when we talk about the Chilean um, meddling in Chilean affairs by the Americans, I think we got we've got to start with El Mercurio, the staunchly right wing newspaper that was I forget the name of the owner, but essentially was turned into an agent of the CIA and American interests all throughout the '60s and really during Allende's political career, right? Yeah, not to get too I mean modern day on you, but. Um, you know, think about think about post media standing up and saying, hey, we can help run the war room, right? We can become an agent of the provincial government in disseminating propaganda. This is what El Mercurio did back then, right, with the U.S. government and said, hey, we can become an agent of the U.S. government to help disseminate propaganda. And it worked. I mean, this is a declassified U.S. Senate file that you can go find online. $1.5 million was spent in support of El Mercurio, the country's largest and most important channel for anti-Allende propaganda. According to the CIA documents, these efforts played a significant role in setting the stage for the military coup of September 11th, 1973. 
and like this is just one of the most obvious examples was this was this staunchly right wing newspaper but it was it was everywhere it was it was throughout it was private capital it was foundations as we'll learn it was the the catholic universities and their association with the university of chicago this was a, a on purpose effort to undermine a popular socialist leader right yeah like I said, history repeats itself. <laughs> yeah. You make people angry, and then people want uh, want change, right? Um, so I, I don't think that op- mode of operandi has changed at all when it comes to undermining anything that's public, you know, such as healthcare. What do you do? You undermine public healthcare. You make people angry, and then you then you introduce privatization as the only option to fix it. So it goes on. I mean, and that's exactly what they did in Chile. They made everybody angry. They created that narrative of scarcity. They created those needs that may or may not have been there if people hadn't been hoarding the food in in warehouses. You know, so um, again, people were, it it was a a way of creating instability in the country that only served to to confuse people and get people angry and, and divide people in in terms of where they wanted to be right it was i mean it was very much um you know nixon and kissinger with the support from the mining corporations pepsico oddly um and and a number of other large international telephone and telegraph yeah yeah multinational corporations that vowed and drew up a plan for in their words making the chilean economy scream right and they did it yeah and when you look at the economic warfare that was essentially put in place by the U.S. Um, intelligence agencies. Yes, like there was the trucking strike, which was a huge, huge thing from what I understand. It was 45 days long, essentially brought the economy to a halt, um, all funded by the CIA. Yep. yep. You know, we've, we've got International Telephone and Telegraph, a company that still exists key figure in fighting Allende both uh, politically as well as destabilizing Chile after Allende won. You know, we've got um, infiltration of almost every member of the Popular Unity Coalition by the CIA. Um, One third of all the U.S. embassy staff in Chile were CIA agents. (laughs) You know, this this was a very on-purpose project of the United States. And We've got to start now. We start moving, talking about the coup and September eleventh, nineteen seventy three. But but it didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't just a, a bunch of generals sitting around saying we've got to get rid of this guy. There was resources and money and intelligence and a huge apparatus and machine to put this thing into motion. Right? It was a huge long game too. Um, Pinochet was at the time at the third or fourth in command. He wasn't at the top. They went through three other military leaders in Chile to say, will you lead the coup? When they said no, they mysteriously died. Cars exploding. One of them got shot in Buenos Aires. Um, right? They mysteriously died until Pinochet was at the top. And then all of a sudden they found one that said yes. Like this was years in the making. So so where were you on September 11th, 1973, Sandra? I was um, actually getting my skirt on um, to go to school. Um it was I, I used to go to school in the afternoons and my brother went to school in the morning. So I was getting my skirt on um, when the first few bombs started exploding in a radio station that was about two or three blocks away from my houses. Um, and um, I, I think in a lot of ways, when you look at, at what happened in 9-11 at about eight o'clock in the morning when the first tower started to explode, I it, it brought back that fear that I felt as a kid 
um, when I was getting dressed to go to school. Um, I had never felt that kind of fear before, um, but it, it brought everything back. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, that's when you knew for a fact that somehow your world was going to change forever. And it felt like a dark moment um, because you knew that something was terribly wrong um, and that something was just uh, not okay with the world that you were going to have after that day. So I remember my mom, um, she was very scared because my brother was in school and she couldn't get to him. So we were left with a neighbor while my mom went you know, running to see if she could pick up my brother. But the bombs were going off and there was military people, you know, all over the place. And um, and so we were left in the house. My mom came back with my brother. And then all of a sudden we had no lights. It, we were the only house in the block actually that had no lights, uh, you know, no water, no nothing, because there it's different than here. Um, but... Um, yeah, and, and we never knew where my dad was for a couple of days after that. So then the neighbor came uh, and said, your dad, you know, your husband was arrested. He was picked up for uh, at his workplace for opposing the government or resisting the, the coup. And so he's been taken to the Chile Stadium. And then... That's when our nightmare began in terms of trying to locate my dad and, and seeing where he was because we didn't get to see him till much later on. He, from the Chilean stadium, he was transferred to another uh, soccer stadium where they basically kept thousands of, of people. And from that place, he was taken to a concentration camp in the north of Chile called Chacabuco, where he spent um, quite a few months almost uh, year and then he wasn't released till the next year in April of next year. So all that time it was uh, a world that we didn't know. You know, my mom had to sell our furniture. We had to get rid of absolutely everything because she had never worked. So in a lot of ways, we ended up having to make do with whatever my mom could bring in, which meant that we had to have the same breakfast, lunch and dinner almost every day which was really no food. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> so, um, you know, family would kind of keep away from you because, you know, they didn't want to be associated with somebody who was already in, in a concentration camp. So it was, you relied on neighbors, you relied on friends, you relied on everybody to come together and try to help each other. And it was a scary time as a kid. You knew that things were bad. We we looked for my dad all over. I, I was kind of a miss a child that liked to misbehave. So in a lot of ways, what my mom did in order to protect herself and 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 keep sanity, I guess, was she had to always have a kid with her because then you would disappear if you didn't, right? And so Well this is in the context of I I'm assume you knew people or you had friends whose parents knew people who were disappearing in the context of this. You didn't know if your dad was alive or not? We uh my my mom worked through um a church um, the church uh, became organized and, and getting people um, reconnected and finding out where people were. But there was weeks on end where you didn't know where your loved one was or, or whether or not they were alive or not because you would hear. You know, I always remember there was uh, one time when we were playing out on the streets and we see one of our many uncles, it was a neighbor that was coming back and he had disappeared as well. But he, he was walking very slowly, so we all run to him. And then you kind of take a step back as a kid because you realize how beaten up he was, right? 
and you know that that he had been released from wherever the heck he was at. So you become exposed to a lot of things that kids should not have to be exposed to, and and it's not a not a good time to be a kid anywhere when you're when you have to deal with that kind of reality. That and your parents got picked up too, right? Yeah, my right. dad. Um, my dad was was an engineer, and again, I was at the time of the coup. I was three years old. And um, my dad was an engineer and he was working um, out of town because one of the things Allende was doing was electrifying rural communities. So my dad was working in a community outside of Santiago, uh, helping set up the electrical grid and, and all of that. And that's where he was, where he got arrested and taken. Um, also from there, uh, driven into the National Stadium, where he was held for a while. Uh, at every one of those steps, people got arrested. Where they got arrested, they were shot on site. Others got moved on to the next level. They went to the National Stadium. Again, many of them were tortured. Most of them were tortured. Uh, many of them were shot at the stadium. And then he got taken up to uh, the concentration camp in the north. Our fathers were actually in the same concentration camp in the north of Chile. He was there. It was about just over a year from the time he got arrested to uh, the time he got taken home. And it's very much... Um, the same story, right? I mean, the, the, uh, my mother, uh, talks about going to, uh, the cathedral in downtown Santiago to kind of talk to folks there, uh, about, you know, the fact that my dad wasn't around and she didn't know where he was and trying to connect with him. And what they would do is the military police, um, the Chilean national police forces militarized and they would stand on the steps of the cathedral and taunt and harass and threaten women as they went in. And if the women responded or did anything, they'd get grabbed and taken away and, and arrested as well, right? So it was like every step of the way, every day, uh, hundreds of women would line up outside the national stadium trying to get somebody to pass a note inside or to find out who's inside. Every night, just before curfew, families would spread out all over the city because what they would do is they would release prisoners a minute before curfew. And then shoot them, say, you know, they were violating curfew. So people would stand up, go to the outskirts of the city to see if they could pick up somebody they knew or find somebody they knew who was being released before curfew. So there was like all of this just horrific, horrific um, reality happening at the time. Yeah. Most houses had um, book burnings at night because you had to burn everything that was remotely associated with you being um, involved in any kind of political activity. So book burning, no, you know, documentation burning, everything was happening at night because that's the only time that you could get away from by doing that right. So a regime that was so brutal that they were making you burn your own books. This wasn't some type of performative ritual, but... No, no, no. They would storm houses. They would storm houses in the middle of the night, make everybody stand outside at gunpoint while they rifled through. If they found a pamphlet, a brochure, a book any kind of what they considered political propaganda or political symbol, even, um, they would take whoever was in the house and arrest them. And this is all done in the name of, of fighting communism, yeah. right, yes. essentially? This was the, the stated political goal of Pinochet and his American backers, right? Yes. yes. And and this this brutality of this regime is is notable. It's, it's given us language that, you know, that we have here in English, right? Like helicopter rides, you know, Pinochet has become famous for mm -hmm. this of taking people out on a helicopter and only the the actual soldiers coming back or even disappearing people that that term comes from chile yeah. as well right yeah. and and not only was it brutal in its violence and the repression that the chilean people suffered under pinochet but chile was also this huge economic experiment 
right? And and Pinochet didn't really have much interest in learning how to run a country. He wasn't interested in the in the political or the economic side of it. He essentially farmed that out to Milton Friedman, the University of Chicago, and a relationship that, that the University of Chicago had been developing with certain right-wing Catholic universities in Chile for some time, right? You, t- you talk about this, Ricardo? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, uh, Friedman had developed a, a new kind of set of ideas around economic policies that countries could follow to um, get themselves out of poverty and, you know, the trickle-down kind of theory of radical neoliberal economics is was Friedman's uh, policy, but he didn't have anywhere to implement it because these were some some very radical policies that uh, uh, involved complete gutting of any kinds of regulations, complete gutting of any kind of public and social services, right? Um, no, no minimum wage laws, no p- worker protections, none of that. Like, just extreme, let the market rule and the market will take care of everybody. So they had been working with um, economics departments in countries throughout South America to kind of talk about how great it would be if these South American countries could implement these policies to help them get out of poverty, then Friedman, you know, would have his test case. So the the strong military machine that just kind of quelled any kind of opposition and created this perfect Petri dish for, for just broad-scale human experimentation. Yeah, like, like economics is is a it's a social science. You can't run actual experiments for the most part. You're you're looking at data. You're trying to draw conclusions from these data sources. But you're right. It was a it was a petri dish. It was an opportunity to run an economic experiment at a at a, in a scale that no one had ever seen before. And it was also fundamentally brutal. Right? We're talking about shredding public health care, shredding public education, uh, essentially making private capital uh, making private capital have just as much rights as the people who lived and worked in Chile, right? And and it is it is a, it is a set of economic ideas that has failed everywhere that it's been implemented. I mean, particularly in Chile, you can look at the data and look at the retrospectives and the the, the damage that it was done to the, the economy and the people of Chile is extremely obvious. But somehow these ideas continue to persist. Well, what I think is in Chile, apart from being a petri dish to this economic model that um, we know for a fact where trickle-down economics doesn't work, it doesn't address any equality, where right now almost all our resources are are owned by by foreign uh, corporations, what they they managed to do um, to make sure that this this continued was to erase a collective memory of, of what actually happened in Chile. Um, you know, generations... My son's generation, for example, had never heard of, of what happened in Chile. They took it out of the education system. They'd completely erased that dark chapter in our, in our history. And so it was only been recently since, since people have been, um, you know, more in a position or, or even have had the, the will to kind of remember what happened. Um, you know, I went back uh, not too long ago and I got to visit the Human Rights Museum that was just opened in, in Santiago. And it's kind of hard to see your life reflected in a museum because all of a sudden it became a reality, whereas before nobody um, could speak of it or no, nobody or a lot of people decided that it, it, it hadn't actually happened. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, the fact that this just happened in 1973 is, I mean, you're, you're still alive. I mean, people who were rounded up and, and uh, tortured 
by the Pinochet regime are, are getting pensions from the government. And there's, there's an actual like process for this, right? This is something that is, this is not some, this is like the, not the 1920s, the Marines invading Haiti or whatever. This is, this is like living memory. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one that is again, fundamentally brutal and not only it's violence, but it's economic violence. Right. And then the efforts that were done to implement a regime that no one voted for, and that was fundamentally brutal and, and against the wishes of the people who live there. And, and when we talk about American empire, this is, this is one of the like most brutal kind of recent examples that you can bring up. Right. And, and, and this isn't again, some faraway bit of history. This is, this is right now. This is your parents. This yep. is, you were yep. eight. <laughs> like it, it was truly some horrific evil shit that happened in this, in this country. And, and then as, as a result, there was hundreds of thousands of refugees. Yep. And I think talking about the process of how you and your families came here is an incredibly important part of this story. You said your families, your dads, both your dads were in the same concentration camp. Did you not learn that until you were all the way back here in Edmonton? So or we were here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just, they didn't know each other before then. They met each other in the concentration camp. Yeah. Yep. You know, and and I, I think uh, in terms of, of how my family came here, we, my dad was released from the concentration camp back to the stadium. And from that place he was uh, released he was uh, in our house for about a month and a half um, unable to to basically leave the house because there was still that political oppression that was happening and and so through the UN um, he was taken to Argentina uh, to a, a refugee uh, holding place and uh, we joined him after afterwards um, in Argentina a couple of months later and um and again, that was uh, another place that was going through incredible political turmoil at the time. There was the the AAA, the Argentina anti-communist uh, agency that um, made a lot of people disappear. Um, so, you know, we had people in, in the refugee camp from Argentina, from uh, Uruguay, and from Chile. And so there was not just Chileans in that place, but a lot of people that were escaping or trying to flee the same kind of violence that was happening in their country. So you're, you and your family are at a, at a refugee camp in Argentina. Eventually you get sponsored to Canada. Do you, do you pick like, how does it, how does it so, work? Um, the UN again, um, we, we become refugees. So you apply for refugee status and, um, Every time that we did that, we lived in a refugee place that was about 100 kilometers away from Buenos Aires. So every time we had to go to an embassy to ask if they would take us, they, you know, again, our uncles would borrow kids so that they wouldn't disappear. We'd go to different uh, embassies and pretend that we were kids, (laughs) even though we were. Um, And uh, my dad got accepted uh, under the UN refugee program to quite a few countries and he chose Canada because he felt that Canada was closer to Chile. For um, my parents, my mother, while um, my dad was still in the camp, had made contact um, with a priest through the church, through this whole church process, who had helped her start uh, talking to three different embassies. And when my dad came out and they decided that they just there was not safe to stay in Chile, they completed the application to um Canada, Mexico, and Sweden. And the Canadian application was the one that came out first. They had no idea what they were coming to. 
no idea what to expect. Um, wound up in Edmonton because uh, of my father's background uh, in the trades as, as an engineer working in electricity. And because the oil sands were being developed here, they said Edmonton is where we need electricians. So off you go. Right. And that's it. Like sight unseen without a clue. Edmonton is where we need labor at yeah. that point because yeah. that, that was what it was all about, right? It was not about where you needed to go. It was where they needed you. And, and post-1973 coup, there was also uh, like an international civil society left-wing reaction to the coup, right? And they were, were trying to find places for these refugees to go. Were you, did those folks, were they involved in your process at all? Or, or how did that work out? I, I think we learned about those folks um, later on um, and the amount of pu uh, uh, public pressure that it took um, to be put onto the government of the day to take us as refugees. And, and I think, you know, anytime that you hear, oh, these refugees are just a problem, I, I think we, at least I see myself reflected in that, in the unwanted, um, you know, group, because at some point we were also unwanted here. Um, and uh, it, it took a lot of public pressure for, for us to be able to come. Yeah, and those, um, some of those groups were, were quite, uh, active in working on on ongoing solidarity uh, with Chile after we were here, helping us organize events, helping us stay in touch with each other. Um, the, the one that comes to mind in particular is, is the Wordsworth Irvine Socialist Fellowship that was quite involved in pressuring the Canadian government to accept um, Chilean political exiles, but then also working with Chileans here to, to help us continue solidarity work back home. Yeah, like in doing the research for this episode, I found out that Canada was was pretty much shamed into taking the 7,000 refugees that they took, you know, out of hundreds of thousands. It's not like they took the lion's share or anything, but but that there was a leaked diplomatic cable that ended up calling the people who were being rounded up, arrested, and killed by the Pinochet, Pinochet regime as the leftist riffraff of Latin America. And it was some low-level diplomatic staffer who ended up making that public. And that that, along with the civil society push, was enough... Uh, shame for the government of Canada actually accept refugees. They they took you. They didn't take you because they wanted you, but they took you. And then the government of Canada continued to support the Pinochet regime after they even after taking seven thousand Chilean yes. refugees, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that that's why a, a lot of people didn't understand why we were constantly protesting and holding rallies within the chilling community. Almost all our speeches were in Spanish, but our signs were shaming the Canadian government for supporting Pinochet, and everybody thought we were kind of, what the heck are these people doing? Um, when they're here, they're safe, get over it kind of attitude. And, um, and so, you know, that never stops. But we were quite active in trying to call attention to the role that the, the Canadian government was actually playing in supporting the Chilean uh, dictatorship. At one point, years ago, we were kids. Um, we occupied what was then the passport office in the Royal Bank building downtown. This was before Canada Place. And we occupied the passport office because news came out that the Canadian government was selling paramilitary equipment that the Pinochet regime was using to suppress protest marches and um, democracy in Chile. So you can still see pictures of the police arresting uh, young kids. <laughs> 
And removing removing us from the <laughs> from the yeah, office. Well, yep. if you have those pictures, then we'll put them in the show notes. <laughs> I mean, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was was fundamentally hostile to the Allende government. He refused to visit. He cut off aid to the government when it was in power. He Canada was one of the first countries to actually officially recognize the Pinochet regime in Chile. Right, like three weeks after the coup or something like a blatantly illegal military coup. Um, Canadian banks left Chile after Allende was victorious in the election. You know. Canada joined the U.S. in voting to cut off all money from the IMF in 1972. Like, these are not the actions of a government that was, uh, what's the right word? Help On the right here. side of history? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, they essentially helped Pinochet uh, consolidate his power and enabled his brutal and bloody dictatorship to continue to exist. And, and again, this is all, you know, 40-some-year-old history now, but... You, you folks are here. You're a living testament to the brutality of this regime. And this and our, our Canadian government doesn't deserve uh, really too much credit at all and because it, they were forced to take you, right? Um, and I also think the, the, the local political angle is one that's extremely relevant now, right? And we've kind of danced around it on the edges of this conversation, but I think it's it's worthwhile getting into this now. You know, Naomi Klein wrote a book, The Shock Doctrine. It kind of talked about the Chilean experience. Kenny, Jason Kenny has been very upfront about his plans for the Alberta economy. What's going to happen once they drop their first budget? What's going to happen when they drop their second budget? Do you see the similarities there between what Jason Kenny is talking about and what Chile experienced, you know, under Milton Friedman? You know, um, in The Shock Doctrine, Naomi Klein talks about the, that need to have some kind of shock, some kind of crisis that, that you know, enables those in power to create that petri dish and um in alberta we saw that in 1993 and the crisis was was this manufactured debt crisis right this this over the top oh we're in debt we're in debt you know we've got to cut spending and that that kind of opened albertans up at that point to being receptive to this this ridiculous neoliberal privatize and sell things off approach Right. So, so that we kind of did it to ourselves without the military interference. And we're getting that again. Even if you read, um, you know, the government's blue ribbon panel, right? You hear that same language that, oh, we're in crisis, right? We're in crisis. Alberta's in trouble. We need to deal with this now, right? It's that same kind of trying to create a crisis moment that enables the implementation of, of what Naomi Klein calls the shock doctrine. Yeah. And it also adds to the narrative of, and we need to act now swiftly and strong, right? Because if we don't, then things are not going to change. We need to save everybody from this economic crisis and budget and deficits and so forth. So, you know, the history repeats itself no matter where you're at. And I, I think for me, it's, it's, it's a, a huge uh, turnoff in, in terms of having heard that so many times. And yet there is no political will to actually improve what we currently have in place. Yeah, the, the, you can see the echoes of, of what happening in Chile now, especially, and it's especially ridiculous and, and it's, it's incumbent on us to point it out because Alberta's economic situation is fine, right? <laughs> like in the context of like every other province, most North American subnational jurisdictions, like we could probably raise taxes a bit and we'd be in better shape. But like even now, bone stock, however many years of, of like relatively tepid economic growth, we're, we're, we're cool. Yep. 
And so this crisis must be created and it must be repeated over and over and over again to justify the fact that like, oh yeah, like little Timmy's not going to have a public school anymore. Or he's not going to get a lunch anymore. Or we're going to, you're not going to be able to get income support to go to post-secondary right. or, or pick your, pick your poison when it comes to and austerity. Add to that, right? I mean, and add to that the, the narrative of uh, enemies and we're under attack and our economy is under attack from external enemies and we have internal enemies who want to destroy our economy and want to destroy our way of life and it like all of those narratives just they 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 sound so familiar yeah right they just echo with that entire history it's it's about you know taking away the responsibility of the collective and and leaving it into the individualism and that's what this whole um fight is all about you know like i can't afford this so Uh, or if I want to spend my money on healthcare, why should I care what happens to people that can't afford it? You know, to me, it's, it's somewhat mean-spirited. It's, it's not what, you know, we understand as a definition of being Canadian is when we don't take care of each other. Yeah, we live in a society, right? We live mm-hmm. in a society that wants to take care of its kids, that wants to take care of its old people, that wants to take care of the people who can't work. And, and reducing this and atomizing us to these kind of individual-based economic units is the point, right? And, and, and capitalism does require enemies, right? You know, the contradictions inherent within capitalism means that things are going to get worse for people. And instead of blaming it on capitalism, they've got to find external enemy A. In mm-hmm. Chile, it was, it was communists. In Canada, it's foreign-funded radicals or environmentalists, whatever. It would be, pick your poison, right? This, this is a, a feature, not a bug, of, our, of a capitalist, you know, patriarchal settler colonial state is that you, 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 do, you do have to find these enemies. And it does feed, I mean, it feeds on itself and it creates that, that, you know, that individualist narrative where if I find out that, you know, a public sector worker makes more money than I do, my solution is not to argue why am I making so little. My solution is to complain about the public sector worker making too much, right? Which just seems completely backward to me. Yeah, it's, it's, it is messed up. And I think we have one last thing to talk about in the context of Alberta's political history and an entanglement with Chile, and that is Ralph Klein. Uh, Ralph Klein said some pretty stupid and shitty things about Chile when he was premier. Um, why, why don't you walk us through the kind of like first one? And then we'll, it was a, it was a cascading series of shittiness, but, but, but go on. What kicked it all off um, was that the opposition in the legislature had proposed a private member's bill uh, to introduce public auto insurance in Alberta. And Ralph Klein responded in debate on this, saying public auto insurance, that's the kind of thing that the Marxists tried to introduce in Chile, and it was a complete disaster. I know this because I wrote a paper on it, <laughs> because he was getting his his high school diploma through Athabasca at the time. Um, and uh, it just just kind of rolled out there from there and he also said he said that pinochet was forced to mount a coup right that because, was because the communists had taken over he was forced yeah. to mount a coup because communism was his yes. argument right and then that i mean i don't imagine the chilean community appreciated that very no much. no <laughs> we had massive rallies and uh he was supposed i i don't even remember i don't think he ever apologized but that was our call um for him to apologize to the chilean community that had been um subjected to the brutality and the torture and the imprisonment and the ultimate exile of all of us but in that moment it became quite clear i wrote uh, i wrote an op-ed that kind of went national at the time and it became quite clear how 
how many people across this country actually hold that view that somehow Pinochet was entitled because he had to stop socialism, right? And that, that, that was, I think, the first time I, on a personal level, really saw the degree to which that view existed in Canada. Yeah. But then on, on the other side of the coin, too, it, w it was... Um it was good to see how many people actually didn't know our story, didn't know the the human side of, of what Pinochet had actually caused. And so it, it allowed us to have that bigger conversation in society to say, you know, I, I you know, we you meet a lot of people here um, in Canada that have very different pre-migratory experiences. Right. Or or that have had very um, different kind of exposures to different political realities before coming to Canada. And so I guess at the end, it was a conversation about humans. It, it was about a, a conversation about the suffering of people and um, and how it's experienced at the same level, no matter what. And then, of course, it was revealed that the paper that Ralph Klein had worked on had been completely plagiarized. <laughs> yes, that is just the fucking capper to this one, which is just that Ralph Klein is. Too, he was young back then. He's <laughs> too fucking dumb to write his own essay on Chile, um, and that he he. Have you read it? I mean, I, the 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 way that his plagiarism worked is that he would just like have a bunch of writing, and then he would have parentheses, and then he would have internet. Yes, in parentheses. <laughs> There's no way to know how. There was no actual quoting within the context anyways hilarious and and that kept the the story in the news for quite a while right because there was an investigation into his plagiarism the like education minister tried to essentially bully the university presidents into doing they did they like, released a statement saying yeah. yes saying uh commending the premier for seeking to to uh for being uh involved in lifelong education and wanting to further <laughs> himself right and our and our institutions were so cowardly they were unable to hold the premier accountable even for this like extremely obvious fuck up and uh it really is kind of i think emblematic of just how messed up alberta is um i do have a, a special gift um for one of you um you can do with this as you will but i did make a trip to the library at the legislature and i have here ralph klein's plagiarized essay oh geez that's fantastic <laughs> I ended Pinochet in the Chilean media. So you can burn that and you can do with it what you want. Um, but I don't need it anymore. And um, and I'm, I'm happy to, again, give it up uh, in, the, in the service of this podcast. Uh, we can also put it into, uh, we have all our history archived at this moment um, in the Alberta archives. So we will definitely add this to uh, our history here in Canada. <laughs> there we go. So I just have one last question for you before we kind of move on to the end of your show, uh, end of our show here. How will you celebrate when Henry Kissinger finally dies? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure when, when uh, Pinochet finally died. There wasn't, it was this weird moment of part of you wants to celebrate, but part of it, like for our parents, all of that like came, comes rushing back as well, right? So you kind of raise a glass to survival. I think is 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 the way you do that, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's no love loss there whatsoever, um, and this the you don't speak ill of the death doesn't apply to guys like Kissinger or to Pinochet. I mean, I, I hope to hell they don't, never rest in peace. But um, but again, it's like Ricardo said, it's it's like the end, the unfair end to crappy lives of crappy people. 
Okay, so maybe a more hopeful question to end it on rather than, than toasting the death of your enemies is is how do we do an IN day here in Canada? And, and how do we build an unapologetically socialist politics out here in this country, in this province? For me, I'm going to speak for, uh, first. I, I think what we need to do is actually have a better understanding of what the word socialism is and how it actually applies to today's wor- narrative and world. Uh, I, I think in a lot of ways, we, like I said before, we've vilified the, the meaning of that word. Um, I think um, we've come to a point where it's going to be civil society and grassroots groups that actually change the way that politics are done. And, and that's my hope. I, I don't have very much hope on electoral politics, to be honest with you. I just think that it's going to be the people that make a, a, a difference in, in what kind of a world we have. It, it worked in, in 1973 when it was finally an opportunity for the working class to actually participate actively. And I think it will work in the same way in Alberta when we have, um, groups that are, are, you know, have identified their area of strength and will work together so that we can make this society in Alberta a better province. We need to stop equivocating on our ideals. Stop not using words like socialist, but start actually talking about what they mean. Yes. We need to talk about our history and and not um, not work towards the possible, but work towards the ideal. And the more that we re-embrace that language, the more that we don't equivocate about it. Look at examples like AOC or, you know, even if you will, Bernie Sanders, who reclaimed a lot of that language and reclaimed a lot of that energy. Um, I think it's, it becomes possible again. Yeah. You know, I think we always get accused of being dreamers. And, and I say, yeah, we, we dream of a better world, but we dream with our eyes open and our feet firmly planted on the ground because we know that a world can be better that we have the ability to make this world work for absolutely everybody, not just a few. That's a fantastic place to, to leave off this conversation. Thanks so much, Sandra. Thanks so much, uh, Ricardo. Um, as we wrap up here, uh, Sandra, what's the best place to find you online? How can people support Friends of Medicare? Do you have some, some deets? Yeah, we have uh, actually an event coming up pretty quick here um, that will celebrate 40 years of our existence. It's on September 26th. If you're interested in attending, go to www.friendsofmedicare.org and you'll find all the information there. You know, sign on to our Facebook, uh, follow us on Twitter and, and make sure that you add your voice. The more that we have voices to amplify our message about the importance of public health care in this province, the more support we will have out there. Uh, parklandinstitute.ca. We've also got some uh, events coming up at the end of the month. We are hosting the Edmonton and Calgary stops on the book launch of uh, Martin Lukash's book, The Trudeau Formula. Future guest on Progress Alberta. Well, there you go. So Saturday the 28th in Edmonton, Sunday the 29th in Calgary. Go to parklandinstitute.ca and check those out. And we have just released um, an alternative to the Blue Ribbon Panel report here in Alberta, doing a genuine analysis of our finances that actually can considers both sides of the ledger. Uh, that's also up on our website right now at parklandinstitute.ca. Fantastic so much. And yes, I'm very grateful to have Sandra and Ricardo here on the extra parliamentary left uh, here in Alberta alongside Progress Alberta. Um, if you like this show, please tell your friends about it. Please go ahead and leave reviews, post it, share it. I think this has been a really fantastic episode. And so, uh, especially on the, the anniversary of September 11th, please go out there. We are also in the middle of a fundraising drive. Uh, we are looking for 200 patrons, 200 people who can kick in at least $5 a month. So if that's something that you can do and you are interested and you want to keep this podcast going, go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. 
Also, if you have any thoughts, notes, comments, hate mail, if you think I need th- things that you think I need to hear, I'm on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can also reach me on email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme, and goodbye. <laughs>